0: Everything that I do is a design problem to get me towards what I want in life. We sort of recognize that that power and realize that like if we could do that for other people, the world of architecture would be a more interesting place. like I went into school as a super idealist around what architecture can do to change the world. We worked on a project where we went to South Africa and built a school. And my thinking was that architecture can change the world. And the reality is, unfortunately, it can't. You know, there's too many other things going on, but architects can change the world.
1: How many times have you heard the phrase, follow your passion? If you're a millennial, probably a lot. And I think this is A very quintessential millennial thing older generations like boomers gen x i think they've been fed a longer view of career paths and they also came into their careers when the job market was doing a little better their overall mentality is that you generally stick to your one specialty one job or industry and get really really good at that over decades on the other side, with uh, the younger Gen Z crowd, they've gotten to see the trials and tribulations of millennial uh, seeking their passion, so to speak. And I think because of that, they can see their career paths and things like starting a business a little more realistically. So passion versus pay is one of the topics I discuss with Jake and Aaron in today's episode specifically about architects who get burned out of their jobs, but I think this can apply to any kind of work. I've seen a lot of friends go into nonprofit work or teaching, for example, myself included. You know, you go into it really excited, then you realize the pay's not great, the hours suck, and you're undervalued for the work you're putting in. And before long, you start looking for a way out. I'm not here to be a Debbie Downer. I think that if you're drawn to a job or a business idea by passion there's absolutely something there but passion shouldn't be seen as compensation passion's not going to pay the bills jake and Aaron helped each other navigate their own careers and found ways to apply their years of design training in different career paths Jake now works for Adidas, and he's taught college courses in game design, and Erin now runs her own design studio doing architectural but also branding projects while teaching in an architecture school. A few years back, they formed Out of Architecture, which is a career consultancy where they help architects find alternate career paths where their design skills are valued and they can find better work-life balance. If there's anything you should take from today's conversation, it's to look at your career as a design problem. Your career is something you have control over and you can be creative with it. It's something to keep iterating over time and hopefully over time you'll start to optimize all the different pieces of pay and hours and type of work to find a job that really fuels the life you want to live. I hope you enjoy today's episode as always I'm curious to hear what you take away you can email me at hello at inside out with Jane or reach me on Instagram at insideoutwithjane. with Jane and if you like this episode be sure to hit follow on Apple or Spotify for new episodes every Tuesday all right enjoy the show This is Inside Out with Jane Z, the podcast that helps you build a thriving business without losing your mind. My name is Jane and my mission is to help you build and grow your business while having time for the people and things that matter in your life. Join me every Tuesday as I sit down with an entrepreneur who's already building their dream business. We'll walk through their journey, tips for success, And how to mentally prepare for the long road ahead because building your dream business and dream life is the long game and that's what we're all about right here on inside out in the studio with jake and aaron let's start out by getting to know you two i'd love if you could introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your backgrounds
0: sure so jake and i met in undergrad Both of us went to Cornell uh, Architecture School, but I guess before that, I was always really interested in in designing and making things. When I was a kid, my family used to hide the tape because I would construct too many things out of, out of tape and use all the tape in the house. So as I got older, I discovered actual fasteners. And so architecture school became a sort of foregone conclusion, although I didn't know much about it. I come from a family of makers in different ways. My my grandmother was a, a dressmaker and then a sort of pseudo fashion designer. And then my father was a carpenter. So there's wow. sort of always been this realm of, of making things visual, physical, physical that you actually want in life. So when I was a kid, I was a big tomboy and I asked my grandmother to make me a full soldier fatigue outfit for Halloween one day and she she just made it because we couldn't find one for a girl growing up so I grew up it was yeah it was super fun and actually it spoiled me in a way of growing up with this mentality that if you can dream it you can sort of visualize it you can make it physical fast forward a little bit to trying to figure out an actual career I went to a high school that was really arts focused Focused, but I knew I didn't want to go to art school. So I Googled one day, graphic design and physics and I landed on architecture school. So ended up applying to and getting into Cornell, which was great. Wanted to get out of New Jersey where I'm from. And again, meeting Jake there. Fast forward five more years, graduating, feeling like I wasn't ready to or didn't want to follow the sort of traditional path of a junior design position and slogging through net, uh, NCARB hours and all that sort of thing. So I ended up going to the GSD for an m Mark II, which I don't believe exists anymore. Um, and that's really a master of architecture for
1: people who already have a bachelor's in architecture,
0: right? Right, exactly. So it's the sort of post-professional track, which allows you to be a little bit more playful and creative with what you do next, which I totally wanted to take a a ton of advantage of. So I, I took classes at the GSD, obviously, to fulfill my degree requirements. But what was exciting was when I started to venture out. So I partnered with people in the business school. I took classes over in the Kennedy School and really realized that there's so many other ways that you could sort of craft a career slightly outside of or even outside of architecture. That became way more interesting to me than the traditional path.
1: I'm still like imagining what you were like as a kid and what you made with tape.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So many things. I would get hurt a lot as a kid. So I would make like various medical things for me to like, if I twisted my ankle, I had this crutch. Yeah. (laughs) Like I I made this crutch out of the old like play school kitchen equipment. Like, Uh (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I I made way too many things, all of which sort of fell apart, which I realized tape is the worst way to sort of adhere things. And then you go to architecture school and they tell you, do not use tape. Our first project was to use mechanical fasteners to create something out of three sheets of paper. So I unknowingly prepared myself for that.
1: Wow. You kind (laughs) of graduated to the next level. Yeah. Jake, what was your foray into architecture?
2: So I, you know, I was not one of those people who knew they were going to be an architect growing up like no legos no kind of distinct architectural interests no architects in the family but you know i think the inclination really came from exploring a lot of things growing up it was a mix of sports and music and being outside and building things and it kind of convalesced in this moment just before finding out about architecture. My father is a very successful audio recording engineer in Nashville, and he taught me how to make a guitar. So we sat down together for many months. We created this really beautiful hardwood electric guitar and sort of a similar experience of the power of making things from sort of nothing into a very functional, aesthetically pleasing object. And I was really obsessed with collecting things for my whole life. And I had this sort of like object fetish that I later found out is totally indicative of designers and architects, you know, collecting <laughs> books that I never read just because the books were beautiful, things like that. Um, oh, I do that too. And yeah, of course. <laughs> and you have a beautiful library behind you. I, you know, I can assume that you've read at least 10th of those or more. <laughs>
1: right. At least the intros <laughs> so, to most
2: Of course. Books. <laughs> so, you know, that experience prepared me in some ways for a summer college That I did at Cornell. And that experience was really eye-opening and was sort of fell head over heels in love with the process of design and and building. And, And what I really felt was just architecture in its purest form. So I went through a similar educational background, got my B arc at Cornell, went on to do a master's in design technology at Harvard, and just thought, okay, as I experienced these various versions of architecture, you know. I realized it wasn't quite the same as the sort of initial foray into what I thought was the built environment. It became a lot more technical, a lot less appealing to me. And so I just thought I'm going to stay in academia. I'll just hold myself up in the ivory tower. And um, that worked for a little bit until I left grad school. And at that point, I was actually teaching game design at Northeastern and doing some other things. And I just felt like, you know, I can still use my architectural skills to do all of these different things, just like I was when I was a kid. You know, I can apply them in a myriad of different ways and still consider myself to be a designer, still, you know, have the pride of having gone through the insanely rigorous, you know. School that is architecture school. And for podcast listeners that aren't familiar with that, I mean, studio is grueling, right? You have this incredible, like 24 7 committal to your massive four by eight work desk where you cut, build, draw, scale. You get roasted at this desk by your critics and professors. You get comforted by your friends and colleagues. You eat meals. I mean, you are tied to this place. And so when you get out of that, you feel like, okay, I've I've made it through, right? I've made it through the war. And so I took that with me into a couple of other ventures. I worked for an ed tech startup in Boston. And then I actually moved out here to Portland, Oregon about five years ago. And I began working for Adidas in pretty much what I consider to be the purest form of my love of design and making things. I, I work with a lot of really great people and get to lead a really uh, amazing team of some of whom have architectural backgrounds as well. Who would have thought shoes and buildings not that dissimilar?
1: <laughs> right, right. If you just scale it right, they're kind of mm-hmm. be similar. It sounds like you've both had really eclectic experiences in making things and that your architecture education... And those projects that you worked on when you were young kind of gave you a foundation for applying design thinking and creative problem solving skills to a variety of different avenues. Erin, do you want to share a little bit what what else you're working on these days?
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. We always distill for our clients the the fact that, you know, their career is a design problem. And I think we've we also always joke that we were our first clients, and I've, I've definitely taken that to the extreme in the sense that I really love doing a lot of things, and I will find ways to fit that into what I do on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis as much as I humanly can. So aside from our collaboration with Out of Architecture, which really started as a sort of passion side project to continue to be friends, even though we were living on opposite coasts, I manage a design consultancy and studio called Matter. It We do architecture, furniture, and then brand and graphic design, where we really work with clients that sort of cross those three thresholds. So we'll have clients that do architectural projects with us that we're also doing graphic and and brand or website projects with them. One of the ones we're working on right now is we did a, a renovation and restoration of a project on Martha's Vineyard, and now we're building out a sort of brand and a company around that rental and building a website that can bring people to that sort of experience in that landscape. We also work strictly with startups um, and younger companies on understanding who they are and what problems they're solving and and their identities. So I've always found a a really interesting correlation between designing a building and designing a business. I also teach in the realm of professional practice and architecture. Most of my frustrations with school were where it aligned with the actual practice. And then when I went into practice briefly, so I, I left grad school and I worked for Todd and Billy which was wonderful and then I worked for Studio Gang which was an eye-opening experience and I was very frustrated with this sort of misalignment. So I teach the professional practice course at Cornell which has been an endeavor to sort of modernize that course and also to make architects realize that this traditional mode of practice is not the only thing out there. And also as the industry changes, as the world changes, how can we adapt the architect's role as well as trying to fix all of the less than pleasant things about working in architecture. Um, So yeah, I wear a lot of hats. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: was like, what don't you do, (laughs) Erin? I don't play golf. I hate golf. <laughs> Golf is slow. I never really thought it. <laughs> Too slow for me. So oh, slow. But-, but yeah, I would love to dig into the unpleasant things about architecture in a minute. But did you guys mention how exactly you guys met? Was there a project you guys worked on together?
2: Yeah, I don't know that we have <laughs> spoken about it yet. But many, many moons ago, probably a little over a decade, we had this passing relationship as classmates do until we participated in what is called Dragon Day at Cornell. It's the oldest collegiate tradition that has continued on for every year since I think it was 1904 or something like that. It's a very old tradition that is essentially a show of what young designers and architects are capable of in the form of building an enormous (laughs) dragon that they parade around the uh, entire campus. It draws a a fairly massive crowd. And it occurs typically right before spring break, but it's intended to align with St. Patrick's Day. The first years are given a week off of school in this sort of (laughs) loose term that every waking hour is spent creating and building what was for us a 50-foot long steel dragon coated in beautiful cardboard scales and with the mechanics to make it tip and move and drive. And for that project, Aaron was the co-president and I was the construction manager. And so we actually spent... Quite a lot of time running what felt like a very active small business. The first year architects are in charge of funding all of the parties for all of the architects for the next year. So, in that duration, you typically sell t shirts and not only pay for the materials for the dragon, but you are paying for and collecting. A sort of illicit funds for the future imbibing of all of your older classmates and it becomes this thing where the responsibility is on you to figure out how to market to sell to produce not only beautiful dragon but beautiful branding graphics t-shirts and so on so it becomes a very fast-moving 60-person firm and that began a very long friendship between aaron and i and also uh, a very long history of us forming businesses together, starting ventures, trying out different projects and so on. And
0: getting in lots of trouble. We got in lots <laughs> of with trouble. The yes. <laughs> yes, yes, so much trouble. Oh, and man. this is all to mention that th- these are 17 and 18-year-old kids, like we were kids. <laughs> So, you know, we're backing up a 36-foot U-Haul in a, you know, 12-foot wide space behind our studio building and trying not to crash it through the wall. It was very much a startup that somehow produced dragons. (laughs) (laughs) That
1: should be part of your founding story. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There you go.
0: I think it did just become part of our founding
2: story. We pivoted. We pivoted. We were in dragons
0: dragons, and then (laughs) now now we're career consulting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. But also what a great way to learn business skills and actually learn working together. Okay. So then fast forward a few years later after the dragons, how did this idea of out of architecture come about?
2: Yeah, it was a long process. I think the idea comes from an experience that most architects have, which is when they leave architectural education, they immediately have this dissonance with the professional practice. So Mm. there is a clear tonal shift between what you do in school, which is almost 100% design or 90% design, and then what you do in professional practice, which is about 90% not design. And, And that's different for every institution, but for us and for a lot of the conceptually focused long standing traditional architecture schools the onus is is put on you to learn technical skills once you leave architecture school so the job of the university is to give you a new foundational way of looking at the world and that is an incredible thing i would not trade that for any experience uh, or any skill but To have done that for so many years and then to jump into a profession that you feel you should be prepared for with a professional degree and to realize you have no idea what you're doing and you won't even be quote unquote useful to those Mm -hmm. people for a decade until you progress through your intern period, which can be years till you get your license, which can be many, many years. It's a lot of time, a lot of hours. And there's something about it that most architects, I think, go through. If not, when they enter the profession, then later on down the line, architects question everything. That's what we're taught to do is question the world around you. And I think at some point you end up questioning your path. We had a lot of friends go through that. We went through it ourselves. And it begs the question, well, why aren't there alternatives? Why does it have to be this way? You hear of people who have gone and done other things, gone to work in games design, gone to, oh, a sportswear company, or someone went to an automotive manufacturer, they're working in a movie studio. And it seems like such a logical transition, right? Like building sets mm-hmm. and designing chairs and all of these things that, that architects love doing. So as we had all these experiences, we started to collect people who were coming to us who were, were asking for our support. And especially when we left the profession, we each did that kind of in our own way. We have our own unique take on what it means to be out of architecture, we started to get more and more people asking us explicitly, how did you make this transition? How did you end up where you are? And through that process, we had a number of conversations where just as friends, you know, we've said, we've got this person who, who's asking us about this. Like, What's your take on this? How would we support them? We have an ever-growing network of people that we just love. And it sort of turned naturally into a business, right? Just became something where in order to sustain the time that we were investing in it, we needed to think about it, not just as a hobby, but as a business model. And that conversation happened in 2018. And we've now been doing this for hundreds of clients over the last three years.
1: That's amazing. I have this picture in my mind of you guys building like an underground railroad and like smuggling (laughs) people out of architecture.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs)
2: <laughs> we That wouldn't be the only time that we've heard architecture described as one of many entrapments, right? Like a cult or it does put a lot of pressure on you. And so right. I think there's, yeah, there is some hush hush nature about, oh, can you leave? Like once you have taken on this title architect, like, are you that forever? Like, is that, mm-hmm. is that all you are, who you are?
0: It, it, it's hard because I think architects, they have a real passion. Like a lot of people or a lot of professions, they have a real passion for what they do. And there's a disconnect and it's I think very hard to to leave especially given the camaraderie around it so you know Jake and I talk about Dragon Day and how that formed a bond with us but we could we could probably tell 10 other stories of things that happened in studio or in architecture school that really solidifies you as feeling like I'm a part of this architecture world this is my family in a way mm-hmm. and leaving is difficult in a lot of ways for a lot of different people i think it happens at different times if they choose to go that route but also i think it's this this real disconnect between work that is nourishing which is i think what happens a lot in school. You're dealing with so many different parameters you're allowed to explore and play. And a lot of architects describe themselves as lifelong learners, right? And then going into a profession or going into a working environment or a culture that is, is no longer as nourishing. It, it actually gets a bit more depleting, right? The projects are longer. The work hours are no longer in your control. You're not is in as much control of, of what you're actually doing. And I think that's where a lot of people begin to question what their value is and what their values are and whether or not they're being valued. One of the things Jake and I talk about a lot is that we used to complain a lot. We probably still do, but we would complain and question about why are things this way and and do they have to be that way? Mm -hmm. One of the things we try to talk about with a lot of our clients is money. Not because that's the only indicator of value, but because no one talks about it. Mm -hmm. And We would complain about why don't I know what my value should be when I graduate from school and, and why is it so hard to sort of understand how we should make it in this profession. That became a big part of why it turned into a business because for a while it was us helping our friends and our colleagues and ourselves and then realizing that this is actually a much more ubiquitous problem and it's just not being talked about. So how do we actually begin to have those conversations but maybe still maintain the Underground Railroad feel because I really (laughs) like that (laughs) analogy.
1: It's a little crazy to think about because architecture, as a field tends to attract very talented people who love making things, are creative and have so many skills that they've built up over a long time. I remember coming out of GSD, I would hear about people taking on unpaid internships after a master's degree, after almost 10 years of schooling. If you think of other fields, like if you graduated from law school or business school or or anything else, you would never do that. And I, I wonder what it is about architecture. It's like, do people think that because they're passionate about the work, is it the passion that pays? It seems a little,
0: I don't know, it seems a little unfair. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the disconnect, right? In school, work and passion are the same thing. Your studio work project is your life. But work is also work. It has output. It has definable value in, in a lot of ways. And I think because architects don't think of work as work first, as more so this ability to get to build things or get to do things, that you feel almost privileged, I think it's also somewhat rooted in the fact that architecture for a very long time, and in a lot of ways still is, the gentleman's profession. You. Had to be of a certain class to become an architect. You had to have connections to get you, you know, an apprenticeship to do such a thing. And then you had to have connections to sort of fund your vision, right? Now, obviously, that's a really archaic model and it kicks a lot of people out of it. But I think architecture in general is really still struggling with that today, even if you mm-hmm. just look at licensure numbers. Being a person of color or a woman or anything that doesn't fit the immediate sort of mold of male privileged, it puts architect, it holds a mirror up to this person profession. And and that goes back to why I feel or why we also feel that architecture as a profession is, is changing and needs to change in order to stay alive. Yeah. And you guys are playing a big role in that. So you touched on some of the pain points
1: of architects in professional practice money being a big one not being paid or not being valued for their time and work another one being burnout with long hours are these sort of the main pain points that your clients come to you with what's the like typical situation people are in when they're like okay jake and aaron i need your help
2: yeah there's probably two And I think burnout also has two characteristics to it. One is there's a purely kind of financial sustainability, right? Same way you would for a small business or a startup. You have a a run rate, you have a burn rate of how much you need to sustain your current Life, you know, and how much you need to feel comfortable, whatever that means to you, and just to be able to enjoy things, because oftentimes work is only half the equation, right? For architects, sometimes work becomes all-consuming, and so it becomes less critical. Like, oh, do I have money? Well, it doesn't matter. I'm always at work. But <laughs> you know, the financial aspect is really serious. We say pay versus passion, and we we talk about do you need to sacrifice pay in order to do what you love or can you distill it into something that is transferable across other industries, roles, professions, just jobs that could net you more in terms of your value. And then the other side of that burnout is creative burnout. And I think a lot of our clients, if they haven't necessarily made that distinction for themselves. You know, They all think of themselves as architects. And when they think about that, they think, well, I have to do the stuff that I don't like in order to do the stuff that I like. That's not really true. You know, there are so many specialized roles on their resume, the top tier level of creative architect, And they're saying, I feel unfulfilled. I'm not satisfied with the work I'm doing. That really points to some core issues in the profession. And the last thing I would say on that is when you look at... Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and their talent acquisition, they pay through the nose for the best possible people because they know what a contribution they're going to have to the company. Mm -hmm. It's the exact opposite in architecture that the employee will take on less and less total compensation in order to work for someone who is being seen as in order for the privilege to perform work on like the best architecture and Hmm. that just inherently to me feels wrong
1: it feels backwards for sure Hmm. One of you had mentioned architecture being this super close-knit community. You kind of bond through the pain of studio, right? And, and so, you know, after graduating, I imagine there's this expectation that because you've given so much to the field, it only makes sense to stay, right? And actually practice what you've been trained for. I love the idea of going out and making puppets. Like, that sounds so wholesome. And if you could spend your life doing that, why not? However, I don't know, like... <clears throat> After getting a graduate degree from Harvard in architecture, you kind of have to have this feeling of like, I don't give a F what people think, like, I'm going to take my degree and go make puppets, right? But maybe not everyone has the courage to, to actually do that. So is that part of the work you guys do and like coaching people to reframe their
0: value and, and what they can do with their lives? Yeah, I mean, it started off as a little bit of a of a joke, but for a while, a lot of our clients would just say that they felt like we were their career therapists. I think it sort of resonated with us how how true that ends up becoming. And and we're not therapists; we don't offer therapy. There's a, a disclaimer there. But I think one of the things we do offer is a sort of commiseration and an empathy around acknowledging things that happen, which are not only unique to architecture, but they they do seem to be ubiquitous, and calling them out and just talking. Talking about them, I think for a very long time there was a culture around you just grin and bear it, and this is what it takes. And I, I think that that's really toxic. And we we talk about these notions of like toxic perfectionism, which gets to what Jake was talking about earlier about you are willing to accept less for yourself in order to be a, a, a part of a larger community that again feels like a family, but also sort of feels like a cult. And talking to people about that openly and understanding their feelings around it is a huge part of what we do because otherwise I don't think they would, or, and I mean, we wouldn't have had the ability to really sort of transition and do something differently. I think that does take support. Looking around for validation within the field, you know you're not gonna get it from your office or sometimes from your mentor. And I think that that's really unfortunate. We're trying to really change that conversation because I think it is a conversation that a lot of people wanna have. And it becomes a part of our process with clients. We also try to talk to them about what do they want their life to be like if they leave? or if they make a change. So we cover a lot of different facets. It really depends on the individual. I'd love to hear a bit
1: more about your process itself. I know there's no one formula for everybody, but are there certain questions, certain prompts you have everyone think through to get the ball rolling?
0: Yeah. So one of the things we try to make sure we say is to let them know that it's okay. Like A lot of times we'll be having conversations with people and it almost sounds like they're they're hushed. Or they'll get to a point in the conversation where they're like, I love school and i I love certain people at my office and i maybe i love the work that i'm doing or or whatever but then they'll qualify and say but like I just, I can't make it work anymore, whether it's the money or the hours. And we we have to tell them that like, that's okay. Like no one's gonna slap you for saying that. And you know, you you have to sort of advocate for yourself. And we oftentimes just really have to tell them that is an okay thing to want more money. It is an okay thing to not wanna have to work a 90 hour work week when you're making the salary. That wouldn't really match up with that.
2: Or even just to want more control over your time. A lot of our clients, like they love working, but they don't have a problem with long hours. It's not all about this kind of, quitter mentality, which is another reason we have to tell them like it's okay to want to go and put your time into something else. That's fine. It also doesn't have to be singular. You don't have to just do one thing. I think we're walking, talking examples of people that (laughs) do a lot of different things. Half the fun of having a little bit more time and not working an 80-hour week for a firm is... You can split that time however you want, you know?
0: And that's a big part of it, like this notion of time. As we've mentioned, you know, work is not necessarily work for a lot of architects. So what we usually have everyone do, which we get the feedback of it being really difficult, and I have my students do this in Procrack as well, but we ask them to take out a calendar or take out your sketchbook and draw Monday to Sunday, like right out a week, five years in the future as to how you want to be spending your time. We'll ask them other questions too around like what compensation do they think they want, you know, all these things. But I think actually having to sit down and say, how do I want to spend my time in five years for people who are on the younger side, they, it makes them question like, what goals do I want to achieve in five years? Do I want to have a family or be partnered? Or do I want to have extended or expanded my hobbies so that I could take two days off and go learn how to kite surf or whatever it ends up being. And then for the the people who are mid or, or senior level, it's making them think about they had a lot of experience under their belt. What have they really enjoyed doing that they'd like to do more of, both in work end in life. And we ask them to to plan that out on a daily basis. So if you want to be doing hot yoga in the mornings, or you want to be home with your kids to do homework for a certain amount of time, or you want to travel a couple days a week, maybe you want to go the consulting route, it asks them to to really look at that. And one of the reasons we pick five years out is because it doesn't have the pressure of I need to make a change immediately now. Mm -hmm. But it does give enough of a buffer zone that it's like, okay, I went to architecture school likely for five years, or I did an undergrad in something else and then did four years of architecture school. And it's a chunk of time where a lot of really exciting things can happen. If you're in the mindset of making a change and making progress, it really helps to prioritize what people actually want, both out of work and out of life and out of their careers. I love that calendar exercise. It just
1: makes it so practical. Like day to day, what do you see your yourself doing. Do you have people do that and then compare that to their current calendar? No, but that's a great
0: idea. (laughs) That is (laughs) a fantastic idea. And then they're like, wow, I'm spending (laughs) 80 (laughs) hours at work. (laughs) Oh gosh, that is good. We're going to, we're going to take that. um, Yeah. It's like, how do you,
1: how do you morph (laughs) this into the ideal state, right? Right. Oh, that's good. So let's talk about how working and consulting with other architects, how has that shaped your careers and how you think about your time?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting on a daily basis to have the opportunity and also sort of the pressure of reconsidering like entire career paths. There's an inherent measurable level of success based on things like money and where we're trying to help clients achieve specific targets. Sometimes those targets are well and above what Aaron or I make. And it does make you think, wow, we're placing people into these roles. We're helping them to network and interview and negotiate offers. And I am at a different place. You know, do I want to be where this person is? Do I want the same things that they want? Do I have the same five-year calendar? I think it makes you really have to appreciate certain aspects of your life. As a very specific example, I work in tech inside of a $60 billion company. But I don't have to work a 60-hour week. I don't work an 80-hour week. And I think that balance for me of being able to, in my lunchtime, in my evenings, have discussions like this is really powerful and extremely valuable to me. So when I compare my current role to something that might pay double at an enormous tech company that has very stringent work culture, I then have to check myself and do that self-coaching where i say is that what you would really want and it helps me then to provide that back to clients because we do get clients who ask us what should i want we had a client the other day who's considering do i want to continue to grow my own side business do i want to push forward into a corporate culture do i want to be a consultant who's works for one of the big five and travels 80 percent of the time you know tell me like what i want well you know like can you really see yourself like never being at home except on the weekends? How would your cat feel about that? How would your spouse feel about that? Right. And just trying to poke and, and prod these same questions.
1: Sounds like one thing you guys do is helping people find more life out of their time. I feel like when you're practicing as an architect or in architecture school, because your focus is on work, everything else like relationships, cats (laughs) maybe fall to the wayside. (laughs) But if you can carve out a lifestyle where your work is limited to your work hours, there's that opens up so much more for what you can do with your time.
2: Absolutely. And people think that's impossible, but it's really not. You can do the same amount of the thing that you're passionate about in 30 hours, as you do at an 80 hour a week job. You have to be willing to take the jump. You have to be willing to look for the clients who value the same things you do. If you are gonna create a side business and turn it into your full time, you can make the same kind of level of compensation, do the same amount of work and still have time to go for a long walk and do uh, the example we always use is hot yoga, but I've never done that, so. (laughs) Neither have I. Yeah.
0: Goat yoga sounds really exciting. I met some baby goats. Uh, like a year ago, and I would definitely do some some goat yoga. Yeah, I mean, I like to do things that keep me engaged and keep keep me thinking and, and designing and iterating. And we always say that like your career is a design problem. I think life is a design problem. Growing up, I was in a punk band and rebelling against the traditional is just sort of in my blood. And why am I not surprised? For me, <laughs> right? maybe it's skincare. care. <laughs> Probably, right? And so so for me, like getting to meet people who are inherently super interesting, like I, I tell my students, especially in ProPrac, because they're undergraduates in their fourth or fifth year, I tell them like, guys, you are more than likely the most interesting person in the room as long as you're not in a room of a bunch of other architects and I think when we meet clients who are at various stages in their careers you inherently relate to them but at the same time you're also fascinated like what brought you to architecture what Mm -hmm. what did you really like about it because it becomes this sort of mutual understanding it's like we sort of we grok each other right we speak the same language so for me that's super interesting as an introvert it's also interesting because they come to me I don't have to go find them I don't like networking events because (laughs) I have to engage and talk. So, <laughs> it, you know, it's really great to just have them, you know, book an intro consult and then get to hear about someone's amazing story. The other thing that to me is really powerful, I remember talking to Jake five years ago at this point where I had been offered this job at a startup and it was a design startup and it was to basically be their COO and really help them understand automated design process or, or systematize it and do all these things. And I remember talking to Jake about it because I was weighing that against the, another job offer that was much more traditional. And one of the things he said was, you've done that, right? You've worked for the the architecture office. Why not go try this other thing? You haven't done that before. That sounds really exciting. And I don't know if I was necessarily seeking permission from someone else, but the way he phrased it as a question for me made me realize that that's what our professors did for us. Like, why wouldn't you try this and make this form do that? And it, it really hitched this idea that everything that I do is a design problem to get me towards what I want in life. We sort of recognize that that power and realized that, like, if we could do that for other people the world of architecture would be a more interesting place. Like I went into school as a super idealist around what architecture can do to change the world. We worked on a project where we went to South Africa and built a school. And my thinking was that architecture can change the world. And the reality is, unfortunately, it can't, you know, there's too many other things going on, but architects can change the world. Maybe not always within the traditional realm of architecture, but they can apply the skills and the value and the ideas that they bring. And, and probably most importantly, the passion and really affect like legitimately interesting change. So if we can like empower people to do that,
1: I'm stoked. I think that's awesome. Taking your analogy of your career as a design problem and also seeing out of architecture this business as a design problem, what would you say is like the final form of the business or or do you have one or do you kind of see it as this outlet for you guys to work together and make some kind of impact within architecture? So what is our five-year
0: calendar? It is a great question. I think about what I used to name files in architecture school, like final, final, please print (laughs) final.jpg, number five, right? (laughs) (laughs) I I have a really difficult relationship with the word final. But for me, in five years... If it's got less of a startup feel, that would be great just because Jake and I are we're iterating and trying to figure out which ways work just to be really practical about it. We've been going back and forth between Zoom and Google meets and like what should work. Mm-hmm. I would like to spend less time doing some of the mundane aspects of getting this to be a thing and spending more time talking to clients perhaps finding a way to have a broader reach so that it doesn't just have to be a conversation with Jake and I to let people know that, that this is possible, that this is out there. A lofty sort of long-term goal for me is that the profession changes. I have no interest in in necessarily like stopping architects from becoming architects. I have an interest in changing what an architect is in the world we live in and making sure that change around that title and around what it is that we do becomes a constant dialogue as opposed to to a static thing of a person who wears black and designs fancy buildings and wins awards. I'm not interested in that future for architecture. So if we could be a small part of, of changing that, then I'm I'm stoked. And I think you guys are already doing that.
1: I also love that none of us are wearing all black today. <laughs> we got the true. going on. It's navy blue. <laughs> there you go. True.
2: Navy blue is my color, so I have to wear it when I'm on screen. Uh, You know, I think about this frequently in the same vein as when I talk to clients and encouraging them to go and take their pursuits full time or to do something else. You know, I'm thinking like, am I doing this wrong? I mean, we started this and we put no marketing effort into it, and the word of mouth growth has been pretty much the sole catalyst for this kind of intense year over year acceleration of the number of clients. COVID was a a fantastic time to open up our doors. We turned off our (laughs) pricing and basically said like, come get whatever from us that you need. And so we stopped charging clients. At that point, I think we went from, you know, having... 15 clients in 2018 to like 50 last year, then this year has been an even higher level of growth. And for us to just go through that, my vision of what this would be in five years, I would really like to see us as thought leaders who can provide this go-ahead to young architects and mid-career professionals to explore without us having to speak to every single person. I would really like to have the ability for people to get this boost without Aaron and I being the holdup, right? So if out of architecture can expand in a way that it gives them visibility, permission to those resources, to that kind of thought, then that would be a a major win for me, our architectural education. And I think it is so powerful and so positive that I would still encourage young listeners to go get your education, to go through this process if this is something you're interested in, because the tool set it provides you is so vast, so varied, so immensely powerful, and it cannot be compared with any other type of education, really. So I want to just end on that note saying that like we got out of architecture school as much as as we put into it, and there was a lot of, of energy invested. We also left architecture in the traditional path and carried with us a lot of those skills and tools. Just because you're not going to call yourself an architect anymore doesn't mean that you know, it's over. It doesn't mean you've wasted any time.
0: No, that's absolutely accurate. No one that we've spoken to has said, I wish I didn't become an architect. I wish I didn't go to architectural school. I wish I didn't have these experiences. That's never Mm -hmm. happened. It's more so been this sort of growth out of a traditional pathway. I think the one takeaway I would hope for is that, you know, your job doesn't define you, even though for such a long time, your identity may have been wrapped up in this idea of becoming an architect. You know, obviously there's a licensure around that. There's this prestige around title, but no one that we've spoken to, and even myself, and as Jake just said, would ever change the sort of experiences that we've had, it doesn't stop there. It's not like you've sort of achieved this one thing and and that now you're stuck with it for the rest of your life. Rather, just rethink and reframe how you can apply all of those wonderful skills that you've learned, sometimes through through passion and sometimes through pain, to squeeze even more out of your design career and, and your education. Your job doesn't have to define who you are or your happiness or your value that only really comes from within i mean the
1: whole world's been changing architecture has been a little slow to adapt and to change and you guys are helping people modernize their careers until the industry catches up it's amazing what you guys are doing if listeners are interested in working with you guys or learning more where can they find you
2: we have our, Apparently our seo
1: is great <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: just yes, Google out of can...
0: architecture. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, we yes we do have very strong search presence, but we have outofarchitecture.com dot com, and we offer free introductory calls. So anyone that's interested can get in touch, and we learn a little bit about them, and tell them individually how we can support them. We love LinkedIn, where you can find us there as well. And we also have uh, an Instagram out of architecture. So we'd be happy to hear from anyone who's listening.
0: And we post roles and other things that we feel are relevant to these topics on LinkedIn and Instagram. Reach out when you feel like you want to reach out.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you both so much. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Jane. This has been awesome. Thanks, really Jane. We appreciate it. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. Take a picture of where you're listening from and tag me on a story at Inside Out with Jane. I'll be back here next Tuesday. And in the meantime, chat with you online. Bye.